Hey, I want to play two truths and a lie, okay? Um, seems right to start out a sermon by lying. Um, so uh, if you've never played two truths and a lie, uh, here's how it works. I'm going to make three statements, uh, three stories as it were. Two of them are true. One of them is a lie. Uh, your job, without using any uh, friends from the audience, uh, namely my wife, some of the like, uh, you're to discern this on your own, okay? Now, uh, the first thing, uh, I am happy to say that after many, many years of uh, fighting the man on this, uh, that last week I had been like rendering drawings, I had been coming up with exactly what I wanted to do, and uh, I'm pleased to announce, though I can't show you quite yet, that at the end of last week I got my first tattoo, all right? This is... Um, it's been waiting for a long time. We've had many discussions about this. You guys have asked me my, my theological viewpoints uh, on tattoos. And, um, and so at some point in the near future, I'll, I'll show you. Um, but it, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of a, it's in a difficult spot, okay? So um, excited, though. Excited about that. Heidi, it took her a while to kind of come on board. Um, but anxious that, um, that we could do that. And now her tat is next. Um, <laughs> And it's, of course, it's going to be like a mark with a big, like, heart on, like, the whole of her back. You know what I'm saying? Uh, the, the second thing is, so, when I was just out of college, uh, and, and, you know, crazy in college, of course, still crazy, but we were down in South Padre Island because that's where good believing uh, folks go after they graduate. And, um, and we, we came upon the, uh, the tallest reverse bungee in the world, okay? Now, if you've never been on a reverse bungee before, uh, what a reverse bungee does is you sit in a chair, and then uh, you like it launches you up. You guys know what I'm talking about? And then it like flips you around, and you bounce up and down. And so um, I was like, yeah, that makes sense, right? We just graduated from college. Let's try to die on reverse bungee now, okay? And uh, and so we went on the reverse bungee, and it was it was epic, unbelievable. And uh, just after the first time that we went on it. Uh, they like put us back in. They're like, hey, for five bucks more, you can go right now again. Well, my stomach was already in my mouth, you know, but, but I was like, all right, like, let's do it again. So they fire the laser and, and up we go again. Crazy times. Any, anyone here been reverse bungeeing? Okay. Okay. A few of you guys, you know how awesome it is. Uh, thirdly and finally, I, uh, I noticed when I was a, a kid that there was a rabbit population problem in my neighborhood. And, um, Maybe this is still your neighborhood. I can tell, like, how intense you guys are in trying to figure all this out. Like, you know, right? You guys are, like, in it. Okay. Uh, I, I decided that we needed to create a, uh, a gang called Rabbit Busters. Well, this was just when Ghostbusters had come out. And, uh, and so I made shirts that had, like, bunny ears with red lines through them. And what we did, and I, I didn't call PETA, thankfully, but we, we went around the neighborhood with baseballs. And the whole goal was to kill as many rabbits as we possibly could with baseballs. And um, I am here to say, for those of you guys that are more uh, animal activist types, that I never killed a, uh, a rabbit at all. Hit one small child, but outside of that, there was like a little bit of <laughs> peripheral damage. So, um, so here, here's the three statements, okay? I, I want you to think about this. Number one, I got a tattoo. Number two, reverse bungee, the tallest in the world. Number three was part of a rabbit buster gang, okay? So your job is to pick out which one of those I am now lying about, fibbing about, okay? 
So how many guys think that I am fibbing about the Rabbit Buster Gang? How many of you guys think that? Fibbing about the Rabbit Buster Gang, okay? We've got two. All right. <laughs> Be surprised. Uh, how many of you guys feel as though I am lying about getting a tattoo? Any of you guys? Okay. <laughs> Anyone think I'm lying about reverse bungeeing the tallest in the world? Any, any folks there? Okay, a few of you. Well, um, yes, in fact, uh, I have never reverse bungeed the tallest in the world. I'm totally kidding. I didn't get a tattoo, all right? didn't get a tattoo. I had you there, though, right? Because you were like, what did he get, right? Is it a Greek word or something, right? Um, (laughs) What if you always had to tell the truth? It'd be a weird culture, wouldn't it? Like, what if you always had to tell the truth? Someone comes up, hey, what do you think of my haircut? Mm, it's not so good. <laughs> it's not good. Does it bring up my eyes? No, it actually hides your eyes. It actually makes your eyes look horrific, you know? Like, it's hard to imagine a, a world where, like, where two truths and a lie seem to be the norm. You know what I'm saying? Like, when you talk to someone conversationally, there's a constant discernment that's happening. I'm like, what are they... What are they exaggerating here? What's really true? Was it really this amount or was it a little bit less? Are they trying to make it sound better so that um, they think that, you know, I think that they're better than they are? Um, The truth is a powerful thing. It's something that we long for and yet for whatever reason we find very elusive. So I want to ask you a question and as has been my, my pattern of late, I'm not interested in what you would say. I'm interested in what you would believe. And so because of that, uh, I'm not going to like poll the audience or... I just want to ask you, in your heart right now, do you believe this statement? Next slide. If you're a believer, you've certainly said it. You've sang it. Okay? You've got the bumper sticker. God is faithful. Um, entering into a brand new journey tonight in 1 Corinthians, one of which, to say I'm excited, would be an absolute understatement. This uh, statement tonight is going to call into question our belief system, every single one of us. We say God is faithful. Do we have any idea what that means? We sing God is faithful. Do we have any idea what we're saying when we communicate such a statement? All right? So, no matter what your answer is here, yes, I do, yes, I don't. Wait, yes, I do, no, I don't. Um, I've never done this before starting a book, but we're going to do it tonight. Uh, 1 Corinthians is going to take us a long time. Okay, Philippians took us a summer. We'll be lucky if 1 Corinthians takes us less than a decade, all right? Um, We're right now, I want to take a couple minutes, and in your own way, Would you ask God right now to use his word in incredibly powerful ways in our body? Would you ask him just to come through this whole journey and use the scripture to cut us open, to convict us, to change our hearts, to deepen our faith, to increase our faith? We all share ownership as believers in this room in that prayer. Do you guys know what I'm saying? Do you agree with me? We all share ownership. This isn't like my deal. This is our journey together. Are you guys with me in that? Okay. It's the body of Christ. So take a, 
take a minute and just, just pray that out in your own way. Out loud, silent, whatever. Grab someone's hand next to you. I don't care. Let's ask God to use his word tonight. Come on. Father, I claim victory in your word that says that it's living and active. And I would pray tonight that words that maybe we've dismissed for years would become living and active. I would ask God tonight that through the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would stir in us, not just emotion, but that you would couple it with right theology and doctrine. That we could encounter you in a very real way and at the same time learn about you in a very real way way, God, that those things would find um, union tonight. So from this day until the end of this particular journey, I pray that week in and week out that you'll teach us, that you'll cause our hearts to be um, laid bare, and that in this, God, that you will use your word to continue to sanctify this body, the glory of your son. We pray this in your great name. For your great glory. And all God's people said, Amen. So open to 1 Corinthians, my friends. Um, a lot to say tonight. And I hope that every facet of the way, you're beginning to process that statement, God is faithful. So let's begin here in verse 1. If you're just joining us, what we do is just travel through books of the Bible. So you're here on a great night because you get to begin this journey with us. I'm going to read the first three verses. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother uh, Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, he says in verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is just how you would open a letter, right? Right? When you begin an email, you talk about sanctification. You bring in a guy's name that you can barely pronounce. Like, this is a typical opening to a letter. So let's break down a few things highlighted here in the red. Let's start with our good buddy Paul. Well, we've become very familiar with him in the journey uh, through Philippians. We, uh, as we studied in Acts, saw his conversion. It was a crazy story of redemption, like some of you. I mean, living complete anti-God, like not just, you know, dabbling in things of the world. I mean, this dude was presiding over the execution of Christians. His name Saul at the time. God calls down through the voice of the Lord Jesus and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He rips him from the pit, blinds him for a few days, and then calls him, even as Paul says here, by the will of God to be an apostle, to be one that's sent from God to preach the message of Jesus. And And that's what he does. He begins to travel, though left for dead, though beaten, though scourged. He begins to preach the message of truth that has become clear that he really believes. He finds himself in prisons. He finds himself literally all over at this time the modern world. And now he finds himself in a place called Ephesus writing 
a letter to the church in Corinth. And he says, and I love the language here, by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. So here's what I want to ask already. This statement like shrinks some of you. There are others that are around you that are super gifted, you believe, and it shrinks you. You start to feel insignificant. You start to feel that your place in the body of Christ or your gifts don't matter because they aren't like this person's or that person's. And so you read a statement like this about Paul being an apostle. And you think about him planting churches and you think about him being left for dead and you think about the journey that he's on and you're like, you're like, but yeah, I'm not Paul. Yeah, you're not. And nor am I. And I say, praise God. Why? Because he's built the body of Christ, even as we're going to study way later in 1 Corinthians, very specifically in each piece of that body of Christ playing its specific role. So right now, I just want to call upon those who feel very insignificant. If that's a battle in your heart, if maybe you've had a, a long road or you felt once called to ministry and now you're battling or, or, or you feel like you've been hurt uh, in, in, your, in the understanding of your gifts, or you feel like even others have diminished you, I just want to make sure you see what Paul says in verse 2. Look, at his, look what he says. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be what? What's the word? Saints. The believers in Corinth, called to be saints. This isn't like... Saint Mark, because Mark's great, or Saint whoever, because they're this, or Saint... No, it's in Christ we are all saints, sanctified, set apart. Another word we could use as a synonym is holy. You guys see what I'm saying? So it's different than Saint Charles, or Saint Louis, or Saint Peter's, and all of the other saint names that we have in our cities. It's, it's you are significant... Because of who Christ is in you. And so I just want to gather all of us right now. Maybe you feel less a part of the body because you don't have that gift or that, that gift. Listen, please, please, please. Do not diminish the call that God has on your life. Do not diminish it. Celebrate it. But Mark, I, I, it's not that over there. Yes, you're, not, you're right. It's not that over there for a reason. Play your part. Paul does his. There's no question about the authorship here in 1 Corinthians. Okay, some of the letters that uh, even are attributed to Paul in the New Testament, there are some questions of authorship. Uh, there is not about 1 Corinthians. A random scholar who is rogue and a, a heretic may question that, but uh, no one else. So Paul is writing this letter. Next slide. So let's battle with this. To the church of God, the believers, that is in, what's the word? Come on. Corinth. <laughs> you guys ready? You ready? Here we go, all right? Corinth, let me begin with this statement, is a hot mess, all right? It's a hot mess. We see in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that Paul has already written a letter to Corinth. We do not know where that letter is, okay? But he already sent one letter, all right? And then there's indication later that he sends what would be then a fourth letter. Uh, how many chapters did he write to uh, Philippi? Okay, remember that? And so just between these two letters, by my count, 29, plus another letter, and then potentially plus another letter. What does that say? It wasn't that Paul was like, was like writing them to soothe them. 
He was writing them because they were a hot mess, all right? And so right now, I want to show you why, okay? Next slide. First, geographically, just for the geographically inclined. Um, I've added the blue box there just to show you where Philippi is. This is on his second missionary journey, okay, by all intents and purposes. He, t- he takes about three. The red box there, highlighted in the lower left-hand corner, is the place of Corinth. Now, Corinth was um, a part of a league that was trying to fight the Romans. And at this particular time in the world, say 146 BC, standing against the Romans was a a naughty idea. And so what happens is, uh, under the the general true story, Mamamus, all right, he comes in in 146 and he conquers Corinth. Listen, he kills every single man with a sword, kills them all. The women and the children get sold into slavery, and then he, uh, by historical records, burns Corinth. As prominent as it once was, it's now completely eliminated. What happens 100 years later in 46 BC is a, a, a man by the name of Julius Caesar, just before his assassination, he makes this area of Corinth a Roman colony because he sees Uh, a wealthy advantage to it. Let me show you that wealthy advantage. Next slide. Now, this is like one of the hardest words to say. This is a ifmus. Is that, did I say it right? Ifsmus. It's, isn't it weird? Okay. Ask Lonnie. Like, I kept hitting the pronunciation on Google, like, over and over and over, because I didn't want to botch it, and I just botched it, all right? Now, this area of land is uh, four miles long. It's a straight shot. Both seas on both sides. And what would happen is, is sailors would come to this isthmus. Am I, did I get it? Okay. They would come to this bridge, okay? And what they would do, instead of going around the lower parts of Greece, they would actually come to this land bridge. They would, I don't know how this works, they would prop their massive vessel on wheels. And then they would roll the thing four miles so that they didn't have to go the 276 miles and what was called a very treacherous route around. So instead they, and again, I don't know, like this seems like pretty intense technology, right, for 146 BC. They put her on wheels, you know, throw a Ford engine in her and then roll her across. Well, what happened uh, as the Romans retook control, as the Romans uh, colonized Corinth, seeing it as a massive opportunity for wealth, Uh, They did one better. Next slide. They actually built this, okay, which seems to make a whole lot of sense, right? Let's build a canal, okay? This isn't the Panama Canal. This is a four-mile, like, straight-shot canal, so now ships, and it looks like not even a person could go through there. You know what I'm saying? Like, if it was to scale, uh, it wouldn't be that case at all, right? And, And so they build this later. And so what happens is Corinth begins to attract some very interesting folks, uh, it becomes a um, melting pot of uh, Greeks, of Romans, of Jews. It becomes a hodgepodge in terms of uh, religion. It becomes a very wealthy place, and yet somehow, um, on the opposite side, th- disparaging in, in some ways. Next slide. This is uh, best sum up in, in, in what they believed. And this mountain sits 1,800 feet. Uh, above the city and became a massive refuge uh, for the city. Uh, this is called the Arco Corinth, okay? Now, this temple, 
is the temple of Apollo. What happens is, and I try to do as best research as I can to describe it to you. In the temples in Corinth, you would walk in and there would be uh, shrines for not just Zeus, but at times, by my research, like 20 different gods. So you would go into one temple and all of a sudden you were in like a god museum. And so it was like, and, and this is what the ancient writers say about Corinth, is there was a god for everything and the belief was there was strength in numbers. So the more gods that you believed in, then you were set. And so they would set up their temples this way. Hey, let's go to worship. And we're not just going to worship Zeus. Oh, no. We're going to make our rounds in the god carnival. Okay? Now, Apollo's temple was significant, but not as significant as this temple. Okay? It, it even has some ominous clouds in the background. You like that? Okay? I photoshopped those in. Um, this is uh, the temple of Aphrodite. Do you guys know what Aphrodite is known for? You know what she's the goddess of? Of love, and really more specifically, sex. So here was the belief. Listen to this. This, this gets you into the culture of Corinth. That in the temple of Aphrodite, there were a thousand prostitute goddesses. This doesn't sound good, does it, right? This doesn't sound holy, okay? A thousand prostitute goddesses. And what they would do at night, this was the belief in Corinth, is those prostitutes would leave the temple and then they would go into the city of Corinth at night and create pleasure. And so people would come to Corinth, much like we could say even like a modern day Amsterdam fits, they, they would come to Corinth looking for pleasure, looking for temporary satisfaction, looking for sex. And so this whole thing dominates, and, and I would even say not just pre-Roman takeover, uh, but certainly maybe even more so after as Julius Caesar rebuilds this Mecca. Uh, an ancient writer says this about Corinth. In the second century, I learned in a short time the nauseating behavior of the rich and the misery of the poor. This was the culture. It was deeply entrenched in all kinds of debauchery. So much so that Corinthians became known as this. Next slide. They came to be known as Corinth Iezine. Okay? Now, what this means is, in the, the Greek language, is I'm a Corinthian. And that may not seem significant, but every single ancient writer says... That if you went to a different place of the world and you use this terminology, it bore with it a reputation of sin, of godlessness, of chaos. So the, re the very reputation of the Corinthians was coupled with godlessness in terms of our God and maybe godfulness uh, in the a pagan idolatry worship. So it begs the question, if this is their reputation, what's yours? If we're getting ready to study a long letter where Paul aggressively approaches the church, because what's happening is they are struggling to be believers in this kind of setting. Paul came, he preached, 
He spent 18 months there. But since then, he's learned and heard of all kinds of things, even believers who have gone astray. And so the question I ask all of you is, what is your reputation? What do people say of you when you walk in the room? And the reality is most of us would say, well, it kind of depends on the room. Right? Like when I'm at, I'm at work, I have this reputation. And when I'm around this group of people, then this reputation precedes me. And when I'm over here, this reputation gets attached to my, my back. What's yours? Wouldn't you agree there's some power and consistency? That there's something to be said about having the same kind of reputation in every group of people. I wonder for you if that reputation is that person like, I, I disagree with their, their faith, but I've never felt so loved. I wonder if that would be said of you in every context of your life. I've never seen someone so joyful. They express it differently, but I've never, like, I have never encountered such joy. Would your coworkers say that about you? Classmates, family? Mark, come on now. Like, family? You expect me to be joyful around family? Like, that's kind of stepping in a little bit hot, right, Mark? I'm just saying, we get the opportunity as followers of Christ to bear one name, all the time. So think about a Corinthian, right? You're coming in and you've got all of these gods that you must appease and that then somehow you must represent. Think of the identity confusion and then think of the identity clarification that we have in Christ. Completely frees us, right? So now we don't have to be attached to phrases like this that come with it a, a, a certain sense of sin and debauchery. We actually get to sin under the name of Jesus. People would say that about us. They would be encouraged in that way about us. And so this is Corinth. Um, it's a hot mess, seriously. And what you're going to see, like, already next week in verse 10 when we start, like, there's divisions. There's factions. Like, there's all kinds of things going on in this church. And so let's keep learning about it. Next slide. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Asosthenes. Now, Again, this seems like kind of a, a nice random name in the scripture, right? Oh, that's cool. Okay. Are any of you already motivated to name your child Sosthenes? It'd be kind of legit, I think, right? That's actually my tat. Okay, my wife and I are getting matching Sosthenes tats, right? Now, th this guy is largely significant. And I want to show you where. When Paul gets to Corinth in Acts 18, we see the planting of of this church. So here we go, Acts 18. Check this out. After this, Paul left Athens and went to where? Come on, Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently came from uh, Italy with his wife, uh, Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, tent working, he stayed with them and worked. But they were tent makers by trade. This is where that, you know, like, one of the classic Christian languages, right? Paul was a tent maker. Okay, well, here, here you go. He made a tent. He was a good boy scout, right? Verse 4, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried, key word, to persuade Jews and Greeks. So he comes in into the synagogue in Corinth, and this was, in general, where Paul began. Every time he comes into a city outside of Philippi, remember, they didn't have a synagogue because there wasn't enough Jews, 
He comes in the synagogue and he begins to preach. Here's what happens, verse 5. When Silas and Timothy arrive from Macedonia, so he arrives in Corinth alone. Soon his homies show up. Uh, Silas and Timothy arrive from Macedonia. Paul was, look at this, occupied with the what? Come on. Listen, like no, no matter what your calling is, apostle, and everything else in the body of Christ, to say that we are occupied with the word, to say that our hearts are dominated with the word. What an incredible thing. He's occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, look at this. This is uh, Evangelism 101. He shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. This is how he begins in Corinth, right? Well, what we learn is ever since he left Philippi, um, the response to the gospel has been fairly minimal. Okay, he spends minimal time in some of the other aspects of Macedonia, so he gets to Corinth, and he sees like deadening hearts, and so he, he shakes out, have you ever done this, right? He shakes out his garments, and he literally says, your blood be on your own heads, I am innocent, from now on I will go to the Gentiles. He's like, I'm done with I'm done with you Jews. I'm, I'm done trying to teach you about Jesus. Now, is he done with the Jews? No. Many Jews will come to Christ. But it shows the nature of even Judaism as it spread from Jerusalem. So here's what happens next. This is interesting. When he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, his house was next door to the synagogue. So he goes next door. Isn't that awesome? Right? He's like, this synagogue, you're like, shit, your blood be on your own head. Then he walks out next door. He's like, this will do, you know? Let's figure it out. Okay? This is a, for lack of a better term, strong case for door-to-door -door evangelism. Anyway, goes next door, verse 8. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. I told you, in Philippi, it was the entrance of the gospel into a Europe. And so now we're seeing the gospel as he travels down farther into a Greek land that more and more followers of Christ are coming to the Lord. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, listen to this, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent for what? Come on. I'm with you and no one will attack you or harm you for I have many in the city who are my people. I'm reminded at that juncture in the catalog of scriptures when Jesus says, my sheep uh, know my voice. And it's this amazing image of a shepherd who knows his people. At the beginning of his journey with his people, the Israelites in Genesis, like, you're my people, I'm your God, right? Comes to Paul in a vision, says, no one's going to harm you, don't be silent, keep preaching. And he stayed for a year and six months, that's where we get the 18 months in total, teaching the word of God among them. Now, drama. Check this out, verse 12. But when Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul. The Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the uh, tribunal, saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law, if they only knew that Jesus fulfilled the law. If they only knew that Christ was the complete embodiment of the very law that they had uh, adhere to. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, I love this, 
Agallo said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. God is showing his faithfulness. Keep on preaching. No one's going to harm you, right? I would have a reason to accept your complaint, but since it is a matter of questions about words and names and what? What does he say? Come on. Your own law. See to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. He's like, you guys are wasting my time, which is key for our good friend Sosthenes. Check this out. Next slide. Okay. And he drove them from the tribunal, and they all seized who? There he is, right? Sosthenes the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of, of the tribunal. But Galileo paid no attention to any of this. Why do they, they beat him? Why do they beat him? Because there's a sense even as, the, as a part of the synagogue and a part of the leader, there's a sense that he was probably even a piece of like leading all of this. Okay. And so something now has happened between this moment and, and Corinth. Asosthenes has gone from this encounter to now Paul calls a brother. So the church in Corinth is planted in this premise, in this culture, in diciness all over the place. And Paul spends 18 months preaching that Christ is all and in all. Uh, the same message that he preached to the Ephesians, man-made gods are no gods at all. So as we step into this letter now, you need to understand, it's volatile, it's hectic, and the church is not, listen, is not solid. It is shifty, people are learning and growing and trying to understand their place. So here's how Paul continues then, next slide. He goes on in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I give thanks to my God, always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you are enriched in him, in all speech, in all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. So, so why doesn't he begin with like some authoritative gavel smack across the face? Why doesn't he like come in like a, a dad and in his opening words say, listen, why are you punks disobeying the gospel that I preach so boldly? Why doesn't he call them communists? Like, why does, he, why does he extend grace to them? Because grace is what they need. I feel like I've come a long way in my journey. I feel like when I was 18 years old, 19 years old, 20 years old, I saw the gospel through a lens of if we yell at them long enough, And now, my friends, like many, many years later, I just, I believe that every single one of us in here are so desperately in need of a grace that can't come from any form apart from Christ. And so, is Paul frustrated? Yeah. Are you fr frustrated with some of your relationships? Yeah. Are you frustrated with some of the, the people in and around your life? Yes, you are. Has that frustration turned into anger? Has it turned into angst? Yes, it has. But what if, my friends, you were able to approach every single situation and relationship beginning with grace, not seeing it as an afterthought? The Christ hasn't seen it as an afterthought for you. Grace, salvation, the story of redemption wasn't an afterthought. If so, Jesus would have been an afterthought. But because Jesus was always the plan of redemption, that means grace was always a part of the story. 
That we could never fully get to God, even close to coming to God on our own. But that a Savior had to come. So even though they need a smack, a good kick in the RC Cola, why does he come in with grace? Because that's what they need. They need grace. They need to know grace. Because the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, remember that grace. Don't stop believing in it. Don't stop uh, celebrating in it. That in every way you are enriched in him. Remember this thing. Then he says in verse uh, 7, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the word gift here has tremendous implications, some of which we'll tackle in 1 Corinthians. And it already, like Twitter page, some of you, right? Oh, I know, I know what's coming in 1 Corinthians 11 and 12. And I know 1 Corinthians 13 because it was read at my wedding and every other wedding in the modern world, okay? But love is patient, love is kind. Now do you put it in context already? It's not, he's not like coming in like wearing a Barney costume. You know what I'm saying? The message of love is preached in the context of a church that's divided. Are you guys hearing me? It's huge. It's huge. Okay? They don't preach that at weddings. Okay? He says this about Christ in verse 8. Who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. He sets up all of the things that he'll say, making sure that they hang on the person of Christ. And then he says this, verse 9. Go to verse 9 if you can. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. God is faithful. So the uh, general rhythm of believers is that we say, yes, God is faithful. We're like, hey, yeah, like, way to go. God, you're faithful. You're good. You're but can I ask you this right now? Do you feel like you have any concept of what that means? Has it become for you just a statement that's said, a song that's sung? Because a statement like this for a church that's divided, listen, has incredible implications. Um, let me say this, let me say this. People have let you down. Uh, you took marital vows, and part of the, the vow is that there would be faithfulness. And unfortunately, we just, we just think of the fruition of adultery being an affair. But Jesus makes clear what an affair is, what adultery is. Even if you think on another woman. Uh, could we say correctly, like we are an unfaithful people, could we say that? Is that a fair statement? Um, maybe your dad told you guys some things and he never could follow through with them. Maybe you're a dad now that does that. You overpromise and, and continually underdeliver for your children. Uh, maybe for you it was a boss that promised you the world and then left you. We've all been hurt by unfaithfulness. So then what is significant about a statement that God is faithful? Here's my proposal to you before we journey any farther. My proposal to you is that when Paul says this, he doesn't mean for it to be a Christian nicety. He wants the weight and the significance of the statement to impact the hearts of the people. Like he wants the statement to, I, I even think, like cause a, a standing ovation. Because what I'm going to propose to you as we take a journey through scripture a little bit about what God is faithful even means 
I think the intended conversational point is, if he's faithful, then that has tremendous implications. Our struggle is, we can't conceive of a situation where someone would always tell the truth all the time. We've been burnt. We've been hurt. We've got wounds that are gaping open because we've been lied to, and we've been on the other side. We've been the liar. So what if there was someone that had to tell the truth, that couldn't lie, that was forever faithful. What if that was true? Would it change things for you? If it was more than just a statement and it became a belief system of your heart, would that have any impact? Okay. So, shall we? A journey through the scriptures on what it means for God to be faithful. Listen, I've looked at every single passage in the entire Bible that has to do with God's faithfulness. Every single one. And there is a consistent thread and theme. And I want to bring you guys into that. Next slide. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord, Exodus 34 says. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and what? Abounding in faithfulness. Now, you guys who are here in Exodus, remember this moment. This is at a key moment in the journey of the Israelites, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. He stays true to that. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. The first thing I want to note is that God is abounding in faithfulness. No leaks, no holes, no gaps, abounding in it. Okay? Listen, these scriptures are insanely beautiful. So please come along with me, okay? Next slide. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. The faithful God who keeps what? Come on. Keeps covenant. Now, again, this word, oh, that's nice. He keeps covenant. That's so sweet. Listen. When he tells Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, I'm going to bless those who bless you. I'm going to curse those who curse you. I'm going to make your name great. He pulls a pagan man from a pagan land and a pagan family. And all of a sudden builds on him, on the patriarch of the faith. Something for his own glory. God shows the consistent forever pattern of being a covenant keeper. He makes promises, he fulfills them, he keeps them. And the scripture that you hold in your hand or a phone, like that, what you hold in your hand right now, is a log of a God who cannot break his word, cannot break his covenant. He's held to it. Moses writes about this in Deuteronomy 7. He keeps his covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations, he says. Next slide, as we continue to add to this, look at this. Psalm 111, the psalmist says, the works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. You guys understand what he's saying here? If God is sovereign, then the work of a sovereign God is what? It's trustworthy. And yet, finger pointed at the sky, how dare you, God? How could you, God? Why would you, God? And yet the psalmist says, everything that you do is trustworthy. 
What he's saying is, um, I want God's perspective to reign supreme in my life instead of me telling God what his perspective should be. That's where the psalmist has come to. I trust you. Next scripture, check this out. O Lord, you are my God, says Isaiah. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things. Look, plans, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. You've been true to your word. You've done wonderful things. Because at the end of the day, believer in this room, no matter what circumstance, no matter what situation, no matter how great the pain or sickness, if you're in Christ, then you are saved from the pit of hell through the grace of the Lord Jesus. And what in the world could be better? He's done wonderful things. And so even in, even, even in the darkest, deepest moment of your hurt, your pain, your regret, your shame, all of that, he's done a wonderful thing. Because he's extended to you the one thing that you need. He's been faithful, my friends. Next slide. Check this out. In 1 Thessalonians 5, I love this. Now may the God of peace uh, himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. And what does, he, what does the writer say? He will what? He will surely do it. You do not have to question it. He's going to do it. He's going to come through. He's going to come through. Just a little bit later, check this out. I love how he adds to this thought now in 2 Thessalonians. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you. And now what's the word? Come on. Guard you. Does faithfulness mean that uh, he will accomplish his covenant, that he'll keep his promises, that he'll uh, uh, be sovereign over his precepts and his works? And there's also this sense in his faithfulness of guarding his people. Next slide. 2 Timothy chapter 2, look at this. One of my favorites in this whole journey. This saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. Look at this. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Who is he faithful to, church? Who is he faithful to? He's faithful to himself. He's faithful to his plan. And his love and his grace and his mercy. He is a jealous God about the glory of himself. Are you with me, church? The benefactors of a God who keeps his promises are all of his people. So we become the benefactors of this. We become the sharers in this. And you know this. Why? Because when you were faithless, his faithfulness did not depend on you. Are you guys with me? If it did, then every single time we were faithless or unfaithful, he would say, you know what? The covenant is over. Instead, he looks at us through the lens of Jesus and says, no, the covenant is ratified. The, co the ransom has been paid. The debt is over. The blood spill is enough. And so now in our faithlessness or our unfaithfulness, he remains faithful to himself. And that's where 
That's like what we do not want to believe. We want to believe that it's all about us, that we sit at the center of the story. And I'm telling you, we are a benefactor of a God who cannot break his own word. The benefit of that, my friends, listen, the freedom of that. So those who sit in shame tonight, even though the scripture, and I've been there over and over, even though the scripture says there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus, can I just remind you tonight, in your faithlessness, he remains faithful. You want some more? Like this journey is crazy. Next, 1 Peter 4. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a what? A faithful creator. While doing good. You go through suffering, trust. To who? A faithful creator. A faithful creator. I wrestle with this some, sometimes when people say, well, Adam and Eve, you know, they, they screwed everything up. And I understand the premise of the doctrine that they're trying to build on. But if they screwed everything up, then that means God's plan in Christ wasn't good. And yet, what, what I see a pattern all the way from the beginning is, in the beginning, God. And that word for God is Elohim. It's a plural word, Father, Son, and Spirit. The whole trinity is there from the beginning. And so if that's true then, then God, even in the beginning, even in what we would say here, allowing the thing he hates in sin, he hates it, he abhors it, he can't be near it, he allows the thing he hates to show us how much he loves. He's a faithful creator. A faithful creator. Next slide. First John chapter 1. Hello. Hello. Somebody better just get a little bit excited right now. We confess our sins. He is what? Come on. Faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So there is this consistent running pattern. And I'm serious when I say this. Please hear me. At this point in the journey, as I like went through all of those texts in my own study, I came to this place where I started thinking about something a little bit different. Next slide. And it's all based around this. If God is faithful, then what are the implications? If he's a faithful creator, if he's faithful to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, if he's faithful to keep his promises, if he's faithful to himself in spite of my unfaithfulness, if he is a faithful God, and if that becomes more than a statement, and all of a sudden it becomes a belief, then what does that mean? The psalmist understood the heart of God. And because of that, all of the, the fruition of God's faithfulness is seen in these words that the psalmist says. He will cover you with his pinions. It's the analogy of like the wings of a bird. And under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a what? Come on. A shield and buckler. 
So I have forever tried to really understand how significant it is that God is a faithful God. And what I've done is I've always landed on, okay, he'll never lie, he'll always keep his promises, and what's happened is I've always wrestled with knowing what the implications of that would be on my day-to-day. And so I always just say, okay, like God is faithful, that's a great theological thing to say, and so there I am. But after this journey, I have a whole new perspective. If God is faithful, then he is my eternal refuge. He is my shield. In all things and in all ways, what happens in marital unfaithfulness? You feel vulnerable. Don't you? Come on. When you feel cheated on or when you've been the liar, what happens? You feel like the shield is gone. There's no protection. You're like vulnerable to the world. But what if God being faithful told you something about the daily inworkings of how he is sanctifying you through his spirit to become more like his son? What if it became a claiming in victory through the name of Jesus that he is our shield? our guard, our protector, our comforter. He is the impenetrable shield. There's nothing getting through. And Mark, but but what about sickness? But Mark, what about disease? No, 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 you're misunderstanding. There is one thing that matters about our life here and now. Knowing the Lord Jesus so that we can stand secure here and now knowing that if he takes us home or he comes back, we will forever be in his fold. That security comes in the belief that he is a faithful God. So I can stand tonight and say, he is my shield. My works aren't. My giftings are not. The relationships that I hold so much value, they can't shield me either. None of those things can shield me. But there is one shield that sustains eternity. And that is a faithful God who is my refuge. So I'm saying tonight, listen. It's time to run to him. Do you guys understand what Paul was saying to this church? Come on. He had a heart for him. He spent 18 months preaching the gospel. I mean, he bled there. He he sweat all over the place with the gospel. And what's his heart? I want you to be shielded in Christ. There's no need to chase Zeus anymore or go after sex in this way anymore. You can be comforted in knowing that you are forever his. So embrace that. Cherish that church. That's what he's saying. Run to the refuge. Run to the faithful one. And you know what that shield will do? It will eternally put you underneath the pinions. And guard and love, and once you're a kid, you're never getting out of that grasp. Some of you tonight need to run there. Your whole life has been built on the unfaithfulness of man. I can't make any of you believe that the faithfulness of a God can supersede all of it, but I want to tell you it's true. The faithfulness of God supersedes all the unfaithfulness of man, including yours. But we still have one more passage. Stand with me. Stand with me. Come on. (laughs) 
saw heaven open. And behold, a white horse. <laughs> the one sitting on it is called what? Faithful and true. This is in the end. All of the fruition, and here comes Christ. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges, and what's the scripture says? Make war. And you're like, but that's not the humble Jesus hair flowing in the gospel kind of God that I picture. Oh no, he's come to make war on those, my friends, who have denied him for their whole life. Make war against sin, make war against the enemy, and he will win. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many uh, diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe, come on, dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. When he comes back, his name is faithful. Faithful. Tried and true. Every facet of his character People have tried to deny it. People have tried to poke holes. And yet in the end, on the white horse he comes with the one final battle to win, proving yet again that God is faithful. So listen, run to him tonight. Run to him. Enjoy the safety and the comfort eternally, not in the flesh here now. God is 